Okay, enough messing around. This week, we get into the Matrix. I know you're out there. I can feel you now. Okay, not that Matrix. Uh, but this one is way more powerful than a dystopian future in which humanity is unknowingly trapped inside a simulated reality. That's piddly. Mathematical matrices are used everywhere, from making computer games to quantum physics. We don't really hear about that in school because... You're afraid of us. You're afraid of change. Uh, no. Is it possible that the Matrix bit we did in school just was the least interesting part of all that matrices could be? Uh, yes. That's Jane Breen, assistant professor in applied maths in Ontario University in Canada. She loves modelling the complexity of networks in the real world with some very powerful but sometimes simple tools. Speaking of simple tools... Talking to her just makes me feel smarter. And I start to throw around lingo like eigenvalues and Markov chains. We also blind you with technical terms. Where the molecule goes bleh. We find out how Google got so successful. There's a brief digression into how drug makers use maths to figure out whether their drugs will work. Then we look at how to control the spread of disease. Also, Ruby and Lily are back. This time, they're playing with Markov chains by accident. Okay, so put your counter there. Your bagel's coming in a white, but it's in the toaster. So I'm this. Okay, so one, two, three, four. Now you're two. Roll the dice. What do you want to get? Um, okay. So try and get. Mummy, me and Lydia are playing snakes and ladders together. Anyway, back to Jane. And it all starts with networks. Like suppose you have some kind of network representing people and their and their contacts. Can you figure out who the important people in that network are where you can kind of measure importance in lots of different ways? So, mm. you know, is this person, you know, if they get infected with the disease, are they going to spread it all over the place? Or is yeah. this person a bridge between two communities, that kind of thing? But there's lots of different ways of measuring this and it, it's quite hard to determine, you know, which which ways are the best in terms of depending on what you want to do so maybe you want to control a disease maybe you want to control the spread of a rumor in an online social network or maybe you want to determine who you should tell this information to so that it spreads through the network and then even aside from the whole rumors thing you know there's there's uh you know things like you can determine communities you know on things like twitter you can try and track bots on Twitter yeah. based on, you know, what <clears throat> websites they link to, that kind of thing. There's there's all kinds of things you can determine. I mean, as a mathematician, usually how I'm working is in the abstract where I'm trying to determine like methods and procedures by which you could apply this to any kind of network. But obviously right now, a lot of the things I'm thinking about are motivated by the fact that, you know, this contact network of individuals and whether or not a disease might spread and how the disease might spread. Um, that's obviously something that is motivating a lot of the things I'm thinking about. But there's lots of different ways to think about it. One way is to think, you know, I want to determine overall how connected are we. So I want like one number that represents this is how connected we are. Or you can think about, well, how what influence does this one individual have on how connected the overall network is? And that's where the kind of the role of the individual in something like disease spread uh, makes a big difference. But you can think about these like measures of uh, connectedness 
for all kinds of networks. So you could have like a road network and you're trying to determine, you know, how easy is it to get from A to B in this city? Uh, and so you can calculate, you know, one number that determines overall how well connected the locations in your road network are. Uh, and then from there, maybe you want to figure out, well, what role does this one road in my network play like say i have to close down this road for construction how much is that going to mess things up and when jane is trying to figure out what might happen when she needs to model a really complicated system she uses a markov chain the markov chain sounds like a cold war spy novel where a lantern jawed hero must recover the contents of a shiny briefcase before the moon blows up but actually it's way more interesting than that about 25 years ago it was used to change the world more about that in a while. It's uh, named after a mathematician called Markov. And it's it, it models a, uh, uh, like a random process. Uh, but rather than just kind of, you know, continuously changing in this kind of random way, it models things that, that, that change, that have a finite list of states they could be in. Um, and then it kind of switches from one state to another in, in some time step. Uh, you know, like at one time you're in one state and then you you switch and, and you go to another state. And so there's there's like probabilities that dictate, you know, whether you go from this state to that one or this state to this other one. Uh, and you kind of collect all these probabilities uh, and you, you, you look at what's happening. You know, if I'm currently in this state, what's going to happen next? And a Markov chain is a very simple mathematical model because it, it assumes that, you know, your your past history doesn't matter. It only depends on what state you're currently in. And you kind of look at what your probabilities are of going to the next state. And that's that's what dictates what happens next. Uh, so it kind of simplifies things quite a bit by uh, ignoring past history. Uh, but it can still be a very, very effective model. And it's used to model all kinds of things from traffic in an urban road network to, you know, molecular confirmation dynamics, which is a fancy word for something that I don't know very much about. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Actually, Jane knows a bit about it. We'll find that out later. That's the kind of podcast you're listening to, where I tantalise you with the possibility of finding out more about molecular confirmation dynamics. Aren't we all fierce clever here altogether? Back to Jane, who tells us how Markov chains changed the world. So one of the most well-known applications of a Markov chain is the Google PageRank algorithm. So Google is, I'm sure I don't need to say this, but Google is the most well-known search engine. Uh, but back in the 90s, there were quite a few search engines on the market competing with one another for, you know, who was going to win out. And then uh, Google came up with this method for ranking the web pages on the World Wide Web uh, and that it was, you know, just leagues better than than anything else out there. And this is really one of the main reasons, in my opinion, that that Google won this search engine war of the 90s. Uh, and so to explain, you know, this idea of a Markov chain, let's let's set up this this artificial situation. So you've got your World Wide Web. Uh, and imagine that. Um, each state of your Markov chain is, is, is the act of being on a web page. So you're in a particular state if you're, you know, on, on this web page. And then, you know, when you're on a web page, there's links that go to other web pages in the World Wide Web. And the idea is that, 
you imagine you have, he's called the random surfer uh, and he has infinite time and an infinitely good internet connection. And he just sits and clicks on links all day, right? And it takes him from page to page. And this is called a, 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 a random walk because what's happening is if you're on a web page and you have five links that you could click on, you choose your next destination you know, at random from these five. So you have a probability of one over five of going to each different one. Uh, so he's 20% likely to go to the like web page one, 20% to go to web page two and so on. Uh, so this is an example of a Markov chain because you've got your list of states, your states here are the web pages on the World Wide Web. And you have your transition probabilities. So if I'm on, you know, web page number one, I have a choice of, you know, five web pages to go to. Uh, my probabilities are determined by how many choices I have. And then I make my move. And then once I'm on my next web page, it doesn't matter about my past history because now I'm on a new web page and I'm going to choose my next based on just that information. So this is an example of a Markov chain. But you might be thinking, okay, well, why would I care about this? Because you've just invented a random surfer who's clicking on web pages. How is this useful at all? Uh, and the, the way it's useful is the idea is that it, if you had a random surfer who was doing this, that the most important web pages in the World Wide Web, that he would end up spending more of his time on those in the long run. If you're an important web page, then you are linked to by other important web pages. But this is a recursive definition and you can't really, you know, determine somebody's importance based on other web pages' importance unless you've first calculated their importance and so on. So the method for actually getting that ranking down uh, is to model this using a Markov chain where you just kind of start this random process where you're choosing where to go next. And then there's it kind of gives you a probability distribution of, of where you're likely to be in the long run. And then the ones with the highest probability, like I'm more likely to end up on Wikipedia if I just keep clicking links all the time, then Wikipedia gets ranked more highly than say, you know, Joe Soap's blog about the same topic because not very many people are going to link to him. So it's it's not as likely that I'll end up on that web page through my random process of, of clicking links. So you you build this ranking over and over again through randomness rather than having to do a load of research about how many people with green eyes and spiky hair are clicking on are on the web. Like you don't you build a ranking without needing to know who the people are. Is that right? That's exactly right. So this this process depends only on the structure of the World Wide Web. Like we're not modeling the behavior of an actual person on the Internet because they they wouldn't just click randomly, right? They're looking for something. They're aiming to get to a particular place. Uh, so it's like an, an artificial setup in order to be able to kind of mine this structure. It's a way of, of, of figuring out the structure of the network by this like random process. So the job that this uh, PageRank algorithm was trying to do was to create a structure to build this building made of relative weights and probabilities. And that was all just based on relatively simple maths. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. So this is, you know, 
um, if you're taking a, a course in 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 linear algebra or in matrices, this is the one that they pull out. This is the page rank algorithm. This is our motivation for doing things like this because it's it's quite a simple model. Uh, the thing that's nice about it that that we haven't got gotten into yet is that no matter where the random surfer starts, it the the long run probabilities you kind of converge to this over time. So regardless of where he starts, there's this one particular, you know, list of probabilities that the the overall distribution converges to over time. So yeah, the the mathematics behind it is really quite, uh, you know, straightforward, but it's it's very powerful, as you can tell, because now Google are a big deal. (laughs) When we talk about something like a Markov chain, which is the probability that something will happen based on like an environment around you but ignoring mm-hmm. what you might have done in the past like is that nature i mean with any mathematical model you have to make some assumptions and you have to lose some of the the nature of things a lot of people would argue that ignoring any past history won't give you a, a correct prediction for the future but really you can still predict quite a bit uh even with you know real world stuff using a model like uh markov chains as simple as they may be. So one example that I've come across in my uh, my time, now I don't know very much about it, but it's um, this idea of molecular conformation dynamics, where my understanding of it is you have some kind of molecule. Uh, now, I, the, the molecule doesn't change, but molecules can somehow kind of um, like fold and reconstruct. They take a, a certain shape. There's like these weak bonds that let them fold over. Now it's still the same molecule, so it still performs the same function. Um, but there's small changes that are made in the structure. Um, and so you can you can model this using a Markov chain where, you know, the states are the possible formations of the molecules. And then there's some transitions, you know, from one state to another. Uh, now, those transitions, you just you, you determine the probabilities using data. So you have something that can that can view these molecules and you look at, well, over time, you know, when it's in this position, half the time it changes to this position and the other half the time it kind of does this other thing. Um, now, maybe that transition depends on what came before as well. Like maybe if you were to look further back in the history, you would see a stronger pattern or something. But if you ignore that, you can still naively come up with a model. And then you, I don't know, you try to predict with this model and then you compare it with what's actually happening. And a lot of the time you still get effective predictions, uh, even with those extra assumptions. And so that's that's what you do with math modeling. You know, you, you, uh, you attempt to make assumptions, you try to box things in. Sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes you don't get a good model. Uh, but other times you kind of predict quite accurately what's going on. You lose a little bit, but you can kind of quantify how much you're losing, which is quite nice. And with that molecule, if you know what way it's, what way the bonds in it are kind of wiggling slightly, mm-hmm. does that tell you how that molecule, say, for example, if it's a disease, how it might stick to wherever it is or whether if it's a vaccine, whether it might, how it adheres to where it's based, is it? Yeah, my understanding of it is that um, that this this is studied in in drug design where you want these like stable 
confirmations where, okay, so you, you have all these kind of small wiggles <laughs> that I'm going to view as, as hand wave. You have these small wiggles that happen quite frequently. So you have a molecule that's like in this position and then it kind of just small wiggles. And there's all these different states where in the long run, you're kind of, you stay within this like cluster of possible states most of the time. And then there's some really rare transitions where the molecule goes blah and like completely changes its formation. And if you're designing a drug, presumably there's some, you know, desire for it to be in this formation because you can account for its, you know, how effective it is when it's in this formation. And if there's these really rare changes to this other possible formation, um, then you want to know about that because maybe when it's, if, if under certain conditions it changes, the molecule changes to this other formation, it's not as effective or, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't do anything at all. Or I'm not sure because I'm not a chemist, but my understanding of it is that's what's, what's being studied. Not so much trying to determine like clusters of states that are, that are stable. So small wiggles that, that happen quite frequently versus, you know, massive changes um, that where the transition probability from like this formation to this other is very, very small. Yeah, for someone who swears she doesn't know a whole lot about it, she does a pretty good job of explaining it. But if you want to find out more, Google molecular dynamics and conformation. That's C-O-N-F-O-R-M-A-T-I-O-N. But I do warn you, it's hard to find a simple explanation. But there's an easier way to understand Markov chains. Here's three-year-old Lily, five-year-old Ruby, playing with one. Your bagel's coming in a white, but it's in the toaster. So I'm this one. Okay, so one, two, three, four. Now your turn to roll the dice. What do you want to get? Um, okay. So try and get three. Mummy, me and Lydia are playing snakes and ladders together. Yeah, snakes and ladders is a Markov chain because it is memoryless. Each throw of the dice is independent of what went before. And some very clever people, such as University of Washington data scientist Jack Vanderplas, worked out how to simulate and solve games of snakes and ladders. For example, apparently you could win it in seven moves, but it usually requires about 32 moves. But enough of snakes and the ladders they hang around with. Let's talk about people. Looking at these probabilities of what a thing might do, change from one state to another does that help you predict what people might do and you know how they might interact well one of the things that i that i study these days are uh networks of people so you have you know individuals who have some connection between them somehow uh maybe it's that they're friends on facebook or maybe it's uh contact you know in in real life, face-to-face contact in which disease might pass from one to the other. Very topical, I know. Um, And you can actually do something similar with, you know, you collect this network of individuals. uh, You have a list of hundreds of thousands of people and you determine, you know, these people are connected, these people aren't, and so on and so forth. And this gives you a network. And in the same way as you can model this random surfer on the World Wide Web, you can take a random walk on this network. So again, 
maybe you could think of this as the spread of disease, that the disease is spreading randomly. But actually, let's just think about it as an artificial thing again. So we're artificially making this model where, uh, let's just say, I, I'm just moving through the network at random. And each time I'm at a, a, a person, I choose one of their contacts at random and, and move. The idea is that if you, uh, okay, what we were doing in the Google PageRank idea was the random surfer. We we're just waiting to see where he ends up, you know, on average, like the, the most likely place, the most important web page, right? Um, if you take a random walk on a network, you can do the same thing. And then maybe you can rank the individuals by how important they are in the network, like how many, like who has the most connections, um, you can also determine things like, you know, clusters of people. So if you kind of run this random process and you notice that like, well, we get stuck over here like a lot because these people are really well connected. Uh, and it's quite rare that, you know, I might make it from this collection of people, you know, over to this one here. That kind of gives you an idea of the community structure of the network as well. And when it comes to modeling disease, it gives you an idea of, well, if there's one individual that's kind of right in the middle here who connects these two dense communities, that person is pivotal when it comes to the spread of disease or something like yeah. that. So you look at your sample population, you identify that person. And, it, and then is it a case of you kind of look at what and then you conclude. So your job is almost to work out how connecty he or she is. And then maybe the authorities go oh that's a postman or that's a nurse or whatever so we need those are people we need to focus on so you're kind of providing a map of a population for somebody to act on that's exactly right yeah so i mean we're dealing with numbers that are that are are too big to just be able to look at it and try and point it you know well, that person's right in the middle there um I mean, it's not quite on the order of 15 trillion the way there is with web pages, but there's there's too many and you need to have like mathematical methods to be able to deal with it. And so my research is usually in the area of like, well, you hand me a network and then I want to develop methods for figuring out how well connected is this network? And then how could I, you know, who are the people in the network or sorry, where are the nodes in the network? Cause I'm not thinking about people. Uh, where are the nodes in <laughs> the network? You can't get are... emotionally involved. You're, you're, you'd be interested <laughs> to think of them as people. Right, right. Yeah. So like I, I kind of deal with it in the abstract where I'm trying to determine like mathematical methods for finding the most important people, the most connected people, the people who cause the network to be very tightly connected, that kind of thing. Yeah. When you're walking in a crowd, you know, I presume like so for people to look at large groups as like chaotic, like do you kind of are you in almost like Terminator mode where you can you look at a group of people and you can just see dots between them? Do you having worked uh, on this and mapped populations down to fairly good approximations of their connectivity? When you look at a real crowd, do you look at them differently now because you see the way they're interacting and connecting? Like if you went to a crowded room or a conference, do you see them in an in a networky way? Do you do you map them in your in, do your eyes look at them differently? <laughs> I'm not going to I'm not going to confess to being that much of a nerd, but no, it's something I think is really interesting, especially, you know, nowadays the the 
the with the COVID research, we're thinking about face-to-face networks. But for a long time, people have been thinking about online social networks, online collaboration networks. You know, there's the six degrees of Kevin Bacon type thing. Um, You know, for a long time, people have been looking at networks and how well connected they are. Um, And so it's, it's a really interesting area. And so, yeah, you go to a conference. I wouldn't say that I look at, you know, how people interact with each other, but you do notice like social groups. And then there's those people who are the social butterflies who go from, you know, this group to that group and so on. It is interesting to think about in, in that sense. Yeah. In, in a social network, what does an influencer look like in, in the maths of it? Are they given a, like a, a weighting in your, in your matrix? Yeah, so this is, this is one of the things I'm working on right now, which is that there's lots of different ways to measure it. And depending on what it is you want them to be uh, important for, uh, like whether you're thinking about the spread of a trend or the spread of disease, depending on what the application is, it can be different. Um, so if you want to kind of control the spread of disease, then what you want to do is you want to cut out the bridges in commu- between communities. So not necessarily the people with the, with the most contacts, um, but the people who kind of are, are, are a bridge between denser communities. Uh, if you want a trend to take off, usually you want to get the people who have... Um, the most followers or something like that. So the most contacts. Um, And so depending on what you want to do, mathematically, there are different ways ways to determine um, who's the most central. Because, I mean, what do we mean by the most central? Like it's, it's not a mathematical word. And so we ascribe meaning to it somehow mathematically, whether it be, well, I want this person to be this person is the most central if they have the most like most neighbors or this person is the most central if they, you know, sit on the, the most paths between these two communities, that kind of thing. So there's lots of different ways to think about it. If I decided I was going to come up with a new trend, I don't think it would take off. <laughs> but, you know, there, there are other individuals who, you know, what they say goes. And so if they if they, you know, share something. So do you do you um, think if you need if you wanted to get Markov chains to go viral, you might have to seed it into uh, Nicki Minaj <laughs> or <laughs> or right. some other TikTok influencer? <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah, I gotta get some some influencers on my side. That's right. <laughs> so this is all like this is fascinating stuff about how we can describe what seems like random things in the world around us that you would appear to have no control over. Uh, But yet it all stems from some sort of maths that you know very well. And everybody studies maths in school. Is there a bit of the maths they study in school that is at that lies at the start of the cool stuff, the powerful stuff that you're working in now to do with social networks and rumors and you know, stuff about molecules and cars in a traffic jam. Where does it all start? Where would you recognize it? Yeah, so my my side of things comes from um, matrices. Matrices okay. are what I'm working with. A matrix is so, being plural of matrix. Matrix, yes, the matrix. Yeah. Not the matrix, the movie, the, the mathematical object, <laughs> the matrix. 
Um, but you, you would but, say that because you're stuck in the matrix and are not aware of the real truth. But go on anyway. You probably, <laughs> took, probably took the wrong pill. I can't remember which yeah. color it is, but go on. Yes, if you are over the age of about early 30s, you might remember that matrices were on our leaving cert course, which was, uh, which is the equivalent of A-levels uh, or SATs uh, in Ireland. So the matrices, all we learned, there was just large square brackets. There were numbers in them. There were X's and Y's. There were equations. We knew it was something to do with solving equations, but we had no idea why we were doing it. Which begs the question, the matrix, I remember the matrix in school, and it was like numbers and big brackets. And I don't really remember why we used them. Is it possible that the matrix bit we did in school just was the least interesting part of all that matrices could be? Uh, yes, I I think so anyway. Well, I mean, the thing you use them for in, in school is something that you already know how to do. It's like, I think it's solving simultaneous equations or something like that. And that's, it's, you know, it's something you can use matrices for, but um, the the real effectiveness is when you kind of go to higher dimensions and you have like many, many equations you're trying to solve uh, where there's like linear relationships between everything. So it kind of, um, like the way you do it in, in leaving site is, is very uh, two-dimensional. Yeah. <laughs> I and mean, really what you want is, is to be able to kind of account for all kinds of, of things. And a matrix is essentially just, like you can think of it as a as a as a transformation of space. So like a um, it's it's a function essentially that rather than just feeding it one number and having a number output, it's you you feed in a whole list of numbers and you get out a whole list of numbers. And what that corresponds to is that like your list of numbers, if that's like a a direction you're heading in, what a matrix does is it kind of transforms space around it so that you then head in another direction. And, but but ultimately, what you're talking about is getting closer to the complexity of real life, which is, I presume, school maths says, you know, very, 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 very basic version of life. But the further on in your maths career you go, the closer you try and approximate what the real world is like. And therefore, you need more complicated methods of doing that and more data and more things happening at the same time. And therefore, you need a bigger box of numbers. Sure. Yeah. And so like in the context of the Markov chains that I'm talking about, where the matrix comes in there is that you kind of collect all your transition probabilities together in your matrix where, you know, the, the it's, it's just a table of numbers and the entry in your, you know, first row, 10th column is the probability of going from your first state to your 10th state. Um, and the idea is that, like, say you're currently in a particular state um, and you can represent this as like, you know, a list of, of probabilities of, of where you currently might be by, you know, applying this function to that list of probabilities of where you currently are. You kind of get the next the next step in your system. So it's kind of like rather than thinking about a random surfer and then looking at where he is specifically, you can kind of take stock of where he might be all together and then like apply this transformation so that you kind of see where he might be in the next step. But you're keeping track of everything at once rather than just, you know, one single number. 
but speaking of one single number. OK, content warning. I'm going to ask Jane about a thing called an eigenvalue. E-I-G-E-N. It comes from the German meaning own. Yeah, we're pretty highbrow at this stage. I think I'm going to start calling my office a study. Sometimes in in life, you have mathematicians dealing with loads of data, and then you have the boss of a company or, the, or a politician or a policy former or a, a public health boss who needs a summary of everything that's going on. Like do, so the matrix has all the comp, you know, all these numbers in it representing all the things that can happen within a system. Do you sometimes need to boil it all down to like a, a number that's, that, that just sums up everything? <laughs> yeah. So if you have one of these, uh, you know, a matrix that's transforming your space, what you can do is there's there's a special set of numbers that kind of represent the behavior of this um, of this of this transformation. And I saw somebody on Twitter joked that um, this set of numbers they're called eigenvalues of the matrix. That the eigenvalues of a matrix are like the the too long didn't read the TLDR of the matrix. So if you don't really want to know like you know what all the stuff with directions and stuff, you just kind of want to see overall you know are we are we are we stretching or are we shrinking are we are we heading this direction or that direction or how much are we you know expanding or, or contracting uh, you can look at this list of eigenvalues and it essentially gives you an idea of, of what's going on so th- the idea is that an eigenvalue is like um you have certain directions that you you could be heading in that the action of the matrix, it doesn't change the direction that you're heading in. Maybe it stretches it somehow, but you still continue that way. That's called an eigenvector of the matrix. And then the factor by which it either stretches or shrinks, uh, that's the eigenvalue. And so something, maybe this is helpful to explain it. So suppose that, you know, you're thinking about how much of the disease you currently have in your population and you're heading in a direction where the number of infectious people are increasing. Um, so like from your current position, if you think about this like matrix transformation as, you know, shifting how many susceptible infectious individuals there are, et cetera, uh, as this whole list of, you know, numbers and population breakdowns, maybe all you care about is, am I stretching or am I shrinking? Yeah. Is it good so or bad of- news? Yeah, yeah. So if you look at the eigenvalues of the matrix that's kind of dictating how things are going, if you look at those eigenvalues, then you can kind of, maybe you can determine from that, well, I don't care what direction I'm going, I just want to be shrinking. I want to, yeah. I want to, I want to have as little disease as possible. And so if you can determine, you know, if you can determine what would cause those eigenvalues to, you know, be in such a way that everything is shrinking, that's good news. And so, you know, the the definition of R0 that's reported in the news media, that, that's one way the number of secondary infections for every infectious individual. But in mathematical biology and epidemiology, often the the these threshold values that we need this thing to be less than one, often those are quite closely related to the eigenvalues of a matrix that's associated with the whole thing, where you're just trying to determine what do I have to make all my parameters be okay. so that we 
so that we shrink, so that we end up uh, with less disease than before. So could you could it be conceptualized as a giant control board with lots of the matrix, lots of little knobs that you're twiddling and then you look at this eigenvalue, this output, and you keep twiddling until you get to zero and then you go, right, what did I change? Right, I change yeah, that's actually... That happen? Yeah, so like you have all, like when you model a disease, you have all kinds of, you know, um, you have like how many people do you come in contact with on average or uh, what what rate do vaccinated people get the disease or what rate do, you know, people go to hospital at and all this kind of, so you have all these parameters in your model and then, but you deal with it in the abstract. Like mathematics is all about abstraction. And so you kind of, we don't fill in all these numbers and just get an output. We want to deal with all the, this is why there's all these X's and mathematical symbols and stuff, because you want to be able to understand what's going on. Like, for all possible situations and then if you can you know do your computations in the abstract then you can try and determine okay what would i need to happen in order for that you know that threshold to be you know to be Uh, under this threshold where my disease is not spreading uh, which yeah which knob twiddle is more effective like if i need to if i need to turn 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 this one whereas one little tweak of the other uh, parameter within the matrix has a bigger right. effect okay all right yeah. oh so uh so now i'm now unfortunately you've now um made me uh another armchair epidemiologist uh so i'll just go straight <laughs> on i'll go straight on to twitter with my definite views uh, <laughs> having done <laughs> five the, the minutes interesting, yeah one of the interesting things now about what we've talked about is that like at this point matrices have come up in in lots of different situations. So what I've just described there to kind of give an, a sense of eigenvalues and eigenvectors, that's very different than what we were talking about with the transition matrix for the uh, for a Markov chain, right? Like you, you kind of, there's so many applications where matrices come up and understanding stuff about like how they work and how to compute the eigenvalues and what they can tell you. You know, the stuff we were talking about before about networks, you know, you can also represent a network using a matrix and then try and calculate the eigenvalues for that and see what those tell you about um, the network. And a lot of the measures of centrality and things that are, how central someone is, how well connected things are, a lot of those are calculated using the eigenvalues as well. Um, So it's, it's, there's so much to it, really. I don't think we've really scratched the surface. (laughs) Right. So you have all these techniques and you're you're obviously wrestling with some big, uh, you know, questions about uh, people and networks and all that. What are you? What gets you? What What are you most passionate about working on right now? Like that? What problem are you excited about fixing? Is there something that you can that you're aiming towards? One of the things that we talked before about was these generalizations of how you can think about networks. So. You can think of people as either connected or not connected, or you can think of them, you know, the strength of the connection, which gives you, you know, a a more awkward thing to work with, but possibly a more realistic or more interesting or kind of more accurate um, way of thinking about people's connections. And then there's this this hypergraph as well, where you can uh, think about more general relationships rather than just, you know, between two individuals. 
Uh, and developing the mathematical techniques for that is really interesting, especially if, you know, I'm all about the, the matrices and stuff. You kind of, there's, there's some stuff you can do with a matrix in that setting, but it's, the, the, there's a lot that's kind of unexplored, I think, in that regard. There's people coming up with, um, there, there are, so a matrix you might remember is like a square array with the big brackets filled with numbers. Uh, you can think of, you know, three-dimensional versions of this, which I know wow. next to nothing about. But there's, there's um, you know, you talk about tensors and stuff, and they come up a lot in physics too. And I, yeah, I'm I've, really I've interested heard, in learning I've heard about more tensors. about tensors. I'm, I, I I'm, I'm curious about those. Me too. I, <laughs> I can't satisfy your curiosity right now, but maybe in a year, come back to me, we'll do another episode. <laughs> <laughs> tensors, T-E-N-S-O-R. The Matrix, but in more dimensions. And that's not a reference to a substandard sequels of the film. It's what happens when you add extra dimensions, three and four dimensions. It's used in studying stresses on materials and obviously then how you might travel at warp speed. We'll definitely come back to that in a future episode. But what is Jane working on now? So what I'm currently working on with a, with a group of people from... Um from all over, actually, we have to meet at 8.30 in the morning, my time, because uh, one person is in Melbourne, I'm in Canada, and then the rest are kind of scattered across Europe. Uh, we're working on using these measures of, of centrality, like comparing them and trying to determine which ones um, are best for predicting who we ought to test in a network or who we ought to vaccinate. So suppose you have limited numbers of tests, limited numbers of vaccines, can you use like some measure of the network to try and determine, well, who, who's our priority here? Can we rank people in such a way that we can, that we're going to control the spread of disease best? Wow. So you're, you're looking and seeing who's the, who's the key person? Who do we need to, if it was, <laughs> if you were in battle, it'd be like, who do we take out first? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Uh, but, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of really interesting mathematical problems that come up then, because I think a lot of the idea behind this contact network stuff is there's a huge issue with privacy then, you know, that you don't, you can't, somebody can't just hand me a contact network of people because I could determine all kinds of things about them, whether or not they're breaking, you know, lockdown rules and stuff. That's why there's this COVID app where you know, it protects your privacy because it only exchanges these Bluetooth codes and things like that. Um, but then if, if I don't have access to the whole network, how am I supposed to calculate, you know, measures of, of how central somebody is? So we need to completely shift, you know, our, our, like our mathematical methods and try and, you know, develop new ones that would allow you to kind of judge this based only on local information or, or something like that. It somehow protects privacy, but also, you know, gives you some effective outcome in the end. It must be an interesting dilemma for any mathematician because you, all you want is just numbers to work with, you know, life's simple, <laughs> just, just give right, me the numbers the yeah, and, and, I, and I'll give you an answer. And then you're like, Oh, damn. GDPR, privacy. What a pain. Uh, it's <laughs> making my sums hard. Yeah. But at the same time, the, the new mathematics you have to come up with is so interesting that, okay. you know, I don't I don't have any complaints. You know, for me, it's it's more about the uh, like the process than the actual answer in the end. 
So as uh, Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park, to paraphrase him, maths finds a way, does it? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, or we change the question. <laughs> <laughs> nice way to wrap up, Jane. Thank you. That was award-winning mathematician Jane Breen of the University of Ontario. Uh, one tip she did send me, uh, if you're looking to find out a bit more about this kind of stuff and you need it to be more visual, uh, please do look up 3Blue1Brown uh, YouTube user or Grant Sanderson. It's one of the best maths video series I've seen. And that's it. Lots of mathsy maths this time. So email me if I got anything wrong. Hello at ColumOregan.com or find me on Twitter at ColumOregan, C-O-L-M-O-R-E-G-A-N or the Function Room podcast itself on Twitter, which has scaled the dizzy heights of 80-something followers at Function Room Pod. See you soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>